What I love about that story is I love that Will getting healthy mentally, spiritually, and emotionally was a collective effort. It wasn't that he saw a section of a sermon clip and all of a sudden his brain started working right and he was magically restored. It was a process. And it was a collective effort of his community and his own decision to surrender and him going to see a counselor and him over time deciding, you know what, if I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to walk out of this season that I'm in and still have breath in my lungs, I'm going to have to turn this around on every level. But first, I'm going to have to turn it over to God. And I only bring that up right now because in the past year, we've seen anxiety and depression on the rise like never before. The world around you will tell you that the past year has just been about a physical, medical pandemic. But what is not being talked about as much is the pandemic of mental health that's happening. And that people being isolated and people being separated from community was on the back end of them already being overexposed to more information than they were created to take in on a daily basis. And so we've got a lot of walking wounded right now. Some of you, just statistically, not some of you, several of you. The numbers tell me have thought about taking your life this week. And so at this church, that's not something that we can afford to just bury underneath one sermon that we preached one time. There's got to be an on-ramp constantly for people to get healthy. And the doorway for you to get healthy is your own vulnerability. It's your own willingness to go, hey, I'm not okay. And I, I want God to meet me where I am, but I'm not doing good. And so what's interesting for me in saying that is that a year ago this week was as not okay as I've ever been. Right before COVID hit, I preached like nine straight Sundays in a row, which is super unhealthy. And I woke up on a Monday and couldn't sit in my seat in my office and take in all the information that was in front of me. And I talked about it this week on the Grace Truth podcast, just had a conversation about anxiety and burnout and these things that are very real. But I found more healing and more help personally from letting a doorway for other people to speak into me get opened up. I have found so much help from that simple step of going, I can't do this alone. Because everybody's situation is different. So I don't know why you're in the place that you're in today. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of how healthy you are mentally and emotionally. But I do know this. God has a new day. And God wants you to see the goodness of his love in the land of the living. And if you open up and if you make yourself available for God to move in that area of life, he will. It's fitting that we would bring that up and that we would see a story like that when we just started a sermon series called Trust the Story. And trusting the story is all about it being better that God is God than that you are God. It being a good thing that you can find rest in knowing that the story of your life is being written by the one who wrote the story of all creation and is going to see it into completion. So God's got this overarching story that he's writing in the world and it reads, Jesus wins, but he's also got your individual story. He's got your family. He's got your career. He's got whatever you're carrying right now. And watch this. He cares just as much about finishing your individual story as he does about finishing his overarching story. When you start to wake up to how sovereign God is, but how intimately involved he also is in your story, that's where peace comes. That's where you can start to let go of what's bearing down on you and making you so anxious and so honestly desperate for control of the narrative. And so we're finding true rest. Last week, this was a breakthrough moment when we discovered that God rests when he's finished working, but we rest because God is still working. 
that rest is not on the backside of getting that degree or getting that promotion or getting your kids to this space, but rest always has to be found in the here and now called unfinished because everything will always be unfinished. Young parents, amening me on this, everything will always be unfinished until we are in the presence of God. And as long as he's still working, that's where I find my rest. So here's what you need to know about this series if you missed last week. This series is less about doing something God called us to do and more about letting go of what God never called us to own. And maybe the thing that God has called us to do is to let go of what we were never called to own. And so we're going to progressively hand over, okay, what am I holding on to and what am I struggling to trust God with? And what does it even mean to trust God? Because that's like Christian term for, oh, how trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, just let him, just let him. But what does it mean to actively trust? It means to actively rest in the fact that God is God and he's got control and he's got your good and his glory as his focus for the narrative of the story. Now, I'm up here last week, and I'm telling you, trust the story, trust the story, and I'm telling you to take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And here's what was so challenging about that message. I believe it met people right where they were, but I got to hear feedback of real stories that people all around you are going through. Let me say this. Never assume that you understand what someone's going through when they walk through the doors of this space. I'm more and more blown away the more honest people get about what people are really carrying walking in here. There's people who have had their hopes up for a job and a door to open that for years it has seemed like this door that they're about to walk through is going to open only to have it at the last second get slammed shut in their face and going, God, you just led me down an endless road of yeses to this ultimate no. And it feels like you're a God of confusion more than you're a God of clarity. There are several, not just several, by the tens couples in our church who are going through seasons of infertility and struggling to believe in the goodness of God and watching other families experience a blessing from God while they got to go back in their prayer closet and ask God, why not them? There are couples in our church who are on the brink of divorce. There are widows in our church who have lost the person they loved more than anyone in the world. There are people who are anxious. There are people who are depressed. There are people who are addicted. There are people who are lonely. You are sitting around a broken group of people who, hearing that word, trust the story, this is more than an opportunity to find clarity and get a little bit of rest during a sermon on a Sunday. This is like people's lifeline. This is all they have. God, I trust that you're going to write a story that's bigger than my story. And it's hard to tell someone, hey, trust the story when they're right in the middle of a season like that. But you know what else? I think there's a temptation and a tendency for those of you listening to me right now who that's not the season that you're in to believe that this sermon series really isn't about you right where you are right now. And here's the problem with that. I have found that it's actually more complicated to trust the story when you're going through a season that's easy than it is when you're going through a season that's hard. Because when life is uncertain and things are difficult, yes, it's hard to trust the story, but can we just be real for a second? Where else are you going to go? Like when everything's falling apart all around you and nothing makes sense and you don't even know how to make it through the day with one moment of inner peace, you have to look to God. You gotta look to yourself. I gotta, I gotta trust the story. You wanna know when it's really complicated to look to God? When everything's all as it should be and life is just status quo. That has a tendency of making you complacent and making you stagnate in your faith. And I've found in my life personally on my journey, it's not the moments that are the most uncertain and difficult where I struggle the most to trust God. 
It's when everything's as I wanted it to be that I even believe that I need him in the first place. This isn't just about me. This isn't just about you. This is the story of the scriptures. Read this book cover to cover. Watch the people of God. When they get to a moment where if God doesn't come through for them, they're not going to make it, guess what they do? Trust God to come through for them because what else are they going to do? You want to know what happens after God comes through for them? He blesses them. And you want to know what happens after he blesses them? They make their pursuit more about enjoying the blessings than pursuing the one who gave them the blessing in the first place. And when you make your life like that, you end up surrounded by idolatry that you're unaware even exists. And so maybe there's a connection between the two. Don't miss this. Maybe it's so hard to trust the story when life gets hard because you weren't really trusting the story when life was easy. Maybe you were trusting your story, and as long as things went the way you were anticipating and the way you were expecting it, oh, I trust God. I put my faith in Jesus because this is awesome. But what I want to do is I actually want to check the object of our trust and make sure the object of our trust isn't God sticking to the narrative that we had in mind. I want to make sure the object of our trust is the author, not the details of the story. And if the author stays the one that we're trusting, then you trust him as he crafts circumstances and seasons that are difficult, and you trust him as you're on top of mountains, knowing that the mountaintop is not the goal. He is the goal. So wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are online listening to me right now, you might be on a mountaintop, you might be in a valley. Most of us are somewhere in between. The message is the same. How do I keep my heart in a position of trust in God regardless of where I find myself circumstantially? And here's my answer and here's the whole message today. You're like, it's been five minutes, you're gonna give us the whole message. I'm gonna give it to you right now. I believe it is keeping the kindness and mercy of God in plain sight that is the doorway to sustain trust in God. Today's sermon is called In View of God's Mercy. In View of God's Mercy. I believe you gotta keep the view being the mercy of God in wherever you find yourself and that's how true worship will flow. You don't gotta turn there. I just wanna read this over you because I took that title straight out of Romans chapter 12, verse one. It says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The Christian life is about seeing the mercy and kindness of God and responding with availability and worship. God, whatever it looks like for you to use me and whatever it looks like for you to use this, but you don't, up, you don't end up in a posture, in a position that's open to God without seeing how merciful he is. And you can't, this is huge, you can't see how merciful he is until you take in how wrathful things would have become if not for Jesus. It's the gospel that opens our eyes to stay in a position of trust. And it's not just the gospel that makes you go, okay, I, I, I want to believe in Jesus and I want to trust that he did for me what I can't do for myself. That's awesome. But when you get reintroduced to the love of God, the gospel becomes the doorway for sustained trust over time so that the story that you're trusting is the eternal story that God is telling through Jesus, not the story that you assumed you wanted for your life. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to get a fresh view of the mercy of God from another unlikely place in the scriptures. What did we talk about last week? Who did we talk about? We talked about Jude. When's the last time you heard a sermon on Jude? And it was awesome. So you gotta trust me when I tell you where we're gonna be going this week. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Come on, 830, hold it up. Hey, okay, different Bible drill this week. We're gonna be paying attention for Bible experts. Anyone who can turn straight to this passage 
without looking in their table of context is the person you want to be friends with. Are you ready? Everybody turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1. Come on, guys. You know it. You know it. It's between Habakkuk and Haggai. Come on. Now, now don't end up in Zechariah and be confused by the spelling because they look very similar and they are close. Somebody on the back row got it. They held it up. They're like, I should be your friend. I turned right to it. That's awesome. Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm going to do an extended intro to give you plenty of time to find this right where you are. Zephaniah is what is known as, he is what is known as a minor prophet. All that means is that there are different prophets in the Old Testament who speak longer than others. So major prophets are people like Jeremiah and Isaiah. Minor prophets are people like Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Hosea. There's many of them. So just because it's shorter doesn't mean that it's less important. Now this was 600 years before Jesus showed up on planet earth in a human body and came to restore humanity. And so what's happening in Israel at the time is Israel is in a point where they are receiving a lot of wrath from God for generations of disobedience. And there's all this disobedience against God, and there's all these terrible kings in Judah, which is the southern portion of Israel, and then in Israel, which was where there were 10 tribes in the north that were together, and all these other nations have come and conquered them, and things have gotten really, really bad. Until a king showed up named Josiah. And if you don't know anything about Josiah, you need to know who that is. 2 Kings chapters 22 through 23, you should check it out. The people had gotten so evil that they actually lost the book of the law. So I'm talking about like, like the first five books of your Bible, they didn't even know where that was. They were too busy serving the other gods. They were serving Molech. They were serving Baals. They wanted to be like the other nations. And so there's a priest who comes to Josiah and says, hey, we found the book of the law. And Josiah says, read it. And while the book of the law is being read to the king, the king falls on his face, tears his robes, and decides to go on a rampage destroying the idols that are all around Israel. If you've never read about the life of Josiah, it is so cool. It is just this blip of hope in the midst, in the midst of so many evil kings, in the midst of so many bad things. Now, when Josiah was king, Zephaniah was one of the prophets. And you'll see this from the very beginning. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Here it is. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now that's very important because when you read the Old Testament, there's a very specific relationship between prophets and kings. Kings lead the land politically, prophets lead the land spiritually. And when you can combine the two of those to both be after the heart of God, something special happens in Israel. So you got Josiah who's over here leading all of this reform in a time where there was needed reformation, there was needed revival. But you've also got a prophet like Zephaniah who's ready to bring the word of God. And no doubt, this prophecy that we are about to read, I believe, is what God utilized and used to catalyze a movement for his glory. Think about this, y'all. Think about this. The people of God were complacent. The people of God had stagnated. The people of God had gotten so comfortable in the promised land that they started looking at the gifts and not the giver. And over time, they are receiving wrath from God, and they don't really understand how to get out of it, and this is the message that comes their way. Let's go to verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Tell us how you really feel, God. 
This is different, y'all. Today's going to hit different. That's what the kids are saying now. That's what they tell me. Guys, when I was a youth pastor, I used to always know what the kids were saying. And now I find out like years later, once what I'm saying on stage is uncool. But the kids right now, they're saying, oh, it hit different. It hit different. All that means, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, guys. All that means is like, this is, this is something that I experience often, but it was different this way. Okay? This is different. It hit different. Was that okay? Should I keep that for later sermons? Okay. <laughs> guys, when you read Paul, how does it start? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read all these letters, it's like, God is so good. He is so kind. He's so amazing. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the Lord. The theme of Zephaniah, if you want an underlying theme, is God's judgment and wrath, not just toward Israel, but toward the whole earth. This is going to unfold in such a way where Zephaniah is going to proclaim that God is not only coming after Jerusalem and Israel for their sin, but he's coming after the whole world. And his reasoning for this, he hits on in verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. It says this, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. Go back to verse 12. What happened to Israel and why are they receiving this judgment? I will search Jerusalem and punish those who are complacent. Israel wasn't at a place where they were anti-God. They were at a place where they were apathetic toward God. You ever been there? You ever been so passionate about God in one season and then been in and out of church, in and out of your Bible, in and out of your prayer times, and it was like, I just can't feel anything. I just feel like my spiritual senses have been dulled. It says the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. It's not like we don't like him, and it's not like we're against him, but we're just kind of neutral. And what God proclaims cover to cover in the scriptures is that it's those who are neutral who are his worst enemies. It's those who are lukewarm. It's those who know who he is but don't give credit to his fame or his name. It's those who have grown dull and hardened and, to be honest, just don't care. But that's where the people of God are. But this isn't just a prophecy about judging and bringing wrath on the people of God. This is a prophecy about the whole earth. And sometimes when you read the Old Testament and you read God being so mean and aggressive like this, you need to understand the context of what's happening through the prophet. So he starts with Israel, but then look at chapter 2. He goes to other nations. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, it says Judah summoned to repent. Judah is in Jerusalem, right in the dead center of God's capital of the world. Now watch this. When you look down at the next section in verse 4, it says Philistia. That's in the west. When you keep going and you see in verse 8, it says Moab and Ammon. That's in the east. When you keep going and it hits on Cush or Ethiopia, that's in the south. And then the very next verse, it says Assyria in verse 13. Essentially, what the prophet is doing is he's in the, the capital city and he's proclaiming judgment toward the people of God. And then he's looking above them and proclaiming judgment in all directions. 
And he's going, it's not just about you receiving wrath. It's about all peoples. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, we're not going to have this on the screen. It says this. It says, this is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. So Zephaniah is saying, just when you think that other people can look in on the people of God and laugh at them for the judgment they are receiving, don't think for a second that God's going to leave you out of it. God's not just coming for them. He's coming for all of your pride and all of your complacency, and he's coming hard. And you might be like, why are we talking about this in a series called Trust the Story? Because these are the details that we leave off. And this is the reason why our senses are dulled to the mercy of God. Go to chapter 3 and look down at verse 8. This is the culmination. God says, therefore, this is the climax of the whole letter. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The wor whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. These are passages that we love to fast forward through, and these are parts of our God that we like to overlook and jump straight to the cross. But I want to just invite us for a second to see that you have three and a half chapters of a prophet in the middle of a day where the people of God have become complacent, in the middle of a day where the people just don't care, and you got a king who's righteous, and you got a prophet who's ready to bring the, world, the, the word of God. What's his message? God's not okay with the sin of humanity, and God's coming to do something about it. And right when you hit the climax of the anger of God, God shows his hand and shows his why. And more than he shows his why, he shows his heart. Look at verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. This is your God. I will pour out my wrath on the whole earth. And here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm pouring it out, and I'm going to summon. I'm going to gather all nations to the same place, and I'm going to unleash my wrath like never before. And here's why I'm going to do it. Verse 9, because I'm going to purify the lips of the people that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. The purpose of the indignation of God is to provide a judgment for sin so that the people of God are freed up to worship God with clean lips and a pure heart. Did you know that today there is no reason why you should be singing the songs that we're singing without an offering for your sin? There is no right that I have to stand on this stage and pretend to be a man of God proclaiming the word of God outside of there being an offering for sin and a sacrifice that is put on my lips that I may call on the name of the Lord. And God's going, the purpose of my judgment, here it is, is to gather all the nations, unleash wrath, 
and remove arrogant boasting and leave behind a humble remnant that will serve the Lord in meekness and humility. God is purifying in this moment a remnant that will go to all nations. Fast forward 2,600 years to where you sit today. God is purifying a remnant to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. God is removing the attendance of churches around the world to reach a remnant, to reach a group of people whose hearts were set on God, not set on passing the time on Sundays, to reach a group of people who were serious about their faith. And his, his wrath exists to summon the whole earth so that what? So that he can put on display for all nations how kind he is and how merciful he is. So you're like, this whole wrath thing was a setup for God to show off how kind and loving and merciful he's been? You better believe it because Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 is one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible about the gentleness of God. And think about all that's led up to this verse and now let's read it together. Go to verse 17. It says this, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. Wait, the mighty warrior in chapter one was the one who is coming to judge. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. There's not a bigger flip in the entire Bible other than the flip from Old Testament to New. That God would go from, I'm coming to judge the nations to, I'm coming to hold you and take delight in you. So last Sunday we said you need to take delight in the Lord. You need to take pleasure in him. And that's how God transforms the desires of your heart. What if, what if we flip that upside down? God takes delight in you. God enjoys a relationship with you. God pursues you because he wants you. And how does he delight in you? He will rejoice over you with singing. This is mind-blowing. The ultimate image of who God is is the image of a father with an infant. We have some friends who just gave birth to a baby girl, and parents, you know what I'm talking about. You hold them when they're infants, and they grow so fast, and you forget how little they were at that stage. And then you hold them, or somebody else's baby at that stage, and you're like, this is unbelievable. The image I want you to have of God, if you want God's truest demonstration of his character, is the image of a father singing over his child who's helpless and has absolutely no hope outside of the protection and provision of a loving father. He will rejoice over you with singing. He's doing that right now. Every time you stand on a beach and hear those waves crashing or you hear the sound of rain outside or you see a vision of a sunrise or sunset, you're seeing the song of creation and it's not a song that you're singing to God. It's a song that God is singing over you because he loves you. And when you, when you see mercy like that, you go, God, you're different than I am, but you're better. Now, some of the Bible experts in the room are like, you need to be very careful because you're applying a promise to Israel from a prophet to the church of the New Testament. There's a lot of debate in the church about 
how you're supposed to do that or why Christians would read the Old Testament and actually glean promises to mean something for their life. And I really don't understand where the debate is because Paul pretty much solved the debate in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. I'll read it to you. We already did a whole series on Ephesians, so I know you got this memorized. Look at this. This mystery, the mystery that Paul came to proclaim, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So, mystery solved. Here's what God was doing. He was creating one family out of Jews and Gentiles to be united in the blood of Jesus. And now, because of the blood of Jesus, you not only get a God who treats you that kindly and offers that kind of mercy, you get access to the promises of the people of God. Abraham is our father. We are grafted in as members of the family of God. What does that mean? That means before you spoke a word, God's been singing over you if you're in Christ Jesus. But I want you to notice this. It says through the gospel. That word gospel means good news. But the good news has to start with bad news. And this is the reason why some of you are dull in your faith. This is the reason why some of you worship haphazardly. This is the reason why some of you have become apathetic. Because you've forgotten that the gospel doesn't begin with mercy. The gospel begins with glory. God's glory, his perfection, and his holiness was not something that he wanted to just be displayed through his wrath being poured out on mankind because of how sinful they are. God is so glorious. He's so holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means he's without error and without equal. There's no one like him, and there's no one but him. He's set apart. So when humanity sins against God, it's not that God just came up with the idea to become vengeful and wrathful. It's that God is so holy, he has no choice but for that to be his response for the indignation shown to him by humanity. He's not trying to be like this. It's the only way he can be and be true to his nature. But that's not his heart. His heart is loving kindness. And so, this is so huge, this is the gospel. When glory combined with sin, the result was hell. And watch this, hell's coming for humanity. Hell, separation from God forever. And God goes, okay, here it comes, here it comes. It's gonna drop on the whole world. It's gonna drop on the whole world. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this wrath and I'm gonna redirect it at my son. Are you kidding me? This is who God is? I'm gonna take all of that that was supposed to be theirs and it's gonna go on the only one who's not worthy of it. And, I, and here's what I'm going to do. As I unleash my wrath, this is what that prophecy is about, by the way, in front of all nations. Jesus was crucified literally in the middle of the world. In a time where there were roads that led to the whole world. The message was so simple from Calvary. Here's the wrath. Here's the sacrifice for the whole world to gather together and call on the name of the Lord with lips that have been cleansed. I'm here. And so it's only through the gospel that you get the kind of hope that I'm talking about. But some of you have only accepted 50% of the gospel, which is the last two is mercy and mission. So it starts with glory and sin, but then it becomes mercy and mission. So all you heard growing up was God loves you. God so loved the world, sent his one only son. Jesus died for you. And there's a mission for your life. And that's a lazy way of preaching the gospel because people come to believe God just 
in love with me, and he's got a plan that he wants me to follow, so I'll do some things for him and pray for him sometimes. This is why, this is why your faith looked the way that it did for so long, because you were responding to what was told to you. But what if the full picture is this? God is glorious. He does not need you at all. You are sinful. If anything, he should separate himself from you forever. But because of mercy, God is a God who sings over you. And he's looking after your story the way a father looks after an infant. Better than that. Better than anything or any example I could even give you in this moment. So here's the thing. Today, as you hear this message... Based on your response, you're in one of two camps. There is no middle ground. You're either consumed by the wrath of God or you're consumed by the embrace of God. And trust is choosing to be hugged. You are either consumed by the wrath of God or you're consumed by the embrace of God. And trusting the story is choosing to let God love you. And let what has been spoken over you and sung over you actually be the cry of your heart. There is no person in this room who's in middle ground going, I'm still deciding. I'm just, I'm into this church thing, but I don't know about all that wrath stuff. And I got a lot of questions to work out. Listen, God will go on the journey with you. But sooner or later, there's got to be a decision. And there's got to be a choice. And the choice, watch this, it isn't between being good and bad. It's about, it's, it's between faith and unbelief. Either I trust him and I believe or I'm walking away and I don't, I, I, but watch this. It's not you walking away intellectually going, I just can't believe that. It's you walking away from a father who's going, come home. I love you. I've made a way for you. And what you and I need today and what you and I need every day is a fresh revelation of that mercy. It is not enough to just experience that mercy once upon a time. That mercy has got to stay in front of your face. So here's what we're going to do. If you call this church home, you need to hear this. If you're just visiting, then this is a good clue into where we're going. As we grow, and especially as we build this building, and God takes what he is doing here to more and more people, I want you to understand something. Our church is about reaching the remnant, not about reaching the masses. The remnant is the group that remains, the humble. And here's what happens if you need more about this. There's a great podcast called This Cultural Moment by a guy named Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. You should listen to it. And they talk about how when God brings a move of his spirit to the church, it's the church's tendency to lose the remnant in the process of growth. So what happens is there's a group of devoted people praying and God brings a move of God. Hello, ACC. And people start coming and they start calling this place home. But then what happens is the church starts functioning more like a business to cater to the new people and the remnant sort of gets lost and then eventually they disappear because they want to be a part of where the Holy Spirit's moving in a fresh way. And so you need to understand something. We will keep talking about hell. We will keep preaching messages from the word of God when our own government passes legislation that might eventually say that this stuff is illegal. You guys know that happened this week. No, you didn't notice. It's fine. It's whatever. I wasn't even paying attention. I, they're just doing stuff up there. Guys, this is happening right now. And guys, I, I, do not, I do not care. Truthfully, I do not care what is said about us out there. I care about what is seen about us from heaven. We're going to preach to the remnant. We're going to preach to the people of God. And listen, you could be a part of that remnant because God has called you but you cannot 
sit for the rest of your life in the middle undecided. And the sooner you get to a place where you go, I trust him, I believe it, I want to be embraced, or no, I'm going my own way. The better for you and the better for your story and the better for the people of God. And so I want to end this message sharing with you a verse from Lamentations chapter 3. It's semi-close to where we were before, but don't worry about turning there. You've had enough of like Bible stretching today. It says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Your version might say mercies. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Guys, we have to keep a mutual view of the wrath of God and the reality of hell and the love of God and the reality of heaven. They're both real. And we can't, we can't afford to just veer toward one because one's more comfortable because without the other one, the gift isn't as valuable as you would have seen it. And it will leave you. It will leave you in that state of complacency. And it will leave you not even realizing it, but trusting your own story. But when you have a fresh view of mercy, when you spend your life aware of what should have been yours eternally, but what was given to you in Jesus, now you get to remain in a place of humble trust. And so in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. How do I get a view of God's mercy? I, I don't have points. He's already up here, so clearly I'm done. My only points, my only points today are get a glimpse of God's mercy. And they're both about 21 inches away from wherever you find yourself in a given moment. A view of God's mercy is the distance between your eyes and the scriptures and the distance between your knees and the floor. That's it. How do I get a fresh view of the mercy of God? It's just between where your eyes are and where the scriptures are and where your knees are and where the floor is. And a fresh view of God's mercy happens when you don't accept complacency. When no matter how, good thing, how many good things are going on right now, you understand you're in the, an eternal story and you're in the hands of God like an infant that gets cradled and I'm just gonna let him sing over me regardless of the way this goes. And so that's all I see happening in this moment. We got one more song, but for some of you, this was the first time that you have truly understood what the word gospel means. And I just want to ask you in this moment to respond how you see fit. If that's falling to the ground and crying out to God, if that's singing this song as loud as you can, if that's responding in your seat right where you are, you do that. But this message has to land wherever God wants it to land. You can put your notes away. You can stand up all over this room. I want to pray over you. The band's going to come up here. we could stay totally present in this moment. Would you bow your head, close your eyes all over this space. Heavenly Father, I know that you're speaking right now. I just pray in the mighty name of Jesus that we would be a part of your remnant, that we would be the group that stays fully focused on your mercy, fully focused on your love, and that, God, as you write stories in and through our lives, I pray that it, it wouldn't matter what season we find ourselves in, that we wouldn't let our trust get dictated by whether or not things are going the way we planned or not. God, don't let us ride that roller coaster 
Let us stay fully submitted to you in view of your mercy because you're singing over us. God, for the person in this room who's never called on your name, I pray that they do it right now because they realize their lips have been cleansed by a sacrifice because they realize that the blood of Jesus meets them right where they are. But God, for us as a church body, I pray that the truths of the song that we are about to sing would be more than a song. It would be an anthem. It would be what we stand for. We're committed to your glory. We're committed to your love. In Jesus' name, amen.